when you uh, are committed to preach in an expository sort of way, a preacher uh, occasionally will happen upon a text that he would rather avoid. And uh, this morning's text is one of those. There was a part of me uh, in my uh, study and preparation this week that uh, sought to take the easy way out and just jump over chapter 7 altogether because it's quite a thorny path and I was feeling uh, the need to kind of step gingerly over it and just move on to chapter 8. But it seems like every chapter has its own landmines in it, so I thought I might as well deal with those in chapter 7 as I deal with those in chapter 8. Because the Paul's letter to the Corinthians is such a terribly practical book. It's uh, not like his letter to the Romans that is so deeply theological. That's not to say that Corinthians is not good theology. But what Paul deals with in his letter to the Corinthians is of such a practical nature and meets us right where we are, right where we live. And so it is with this text today. Uh, to marry or not to marry. In the famous words of Shakespeare, to put a twist on it, that is the question. That is the question that Paul is addressing uh, in his words to the saints who lived in the city of Corinth in ancient Greece. I suppose it's important for us to understand a little background to better understand what Paul's words actually mean, meant to the Corinthians and mean to us today. You need to understand that Corinth was known as the sin city of the ancient world. I suppose the Las Vegas of its time. It had extremely low moral standards. It was a port city. And so uh, the sailors that passed through there were looking for fun and leisure. And Corinth had everything to offer to them. Corinth was the place where one of the Greek goddesses, Aphrodite, had a temple dedicated in her honor. And the temple prostitutes, both male and female, were a very visible presence on the streets uh, of urban Corinth. There was rampant homosexuality. Concubinage was practiced by many. Men used their wives as things, wives to clean up and to cook and to take care of the children, do whatever else they pleased. And then it was common practice for Corinthian men to have women on the side to take care of their sexual pleasures. Divorce was commonplace in the city of Corinth as it was through much of the ancient world. The moral character of marriage within the confines of Corinth had been so destroyed that divorce was rampant, was rife in Corinthian society. In fact, ancient historians tell us there are records of people who have been married, who had been married in Corinth 27, 28, 29 times. Uh, many Corinthians counted their years by their number of wives, and you think you've got problems. It's a huge divorce rate. 
And added to all of this milieu, the sexual milieu, was another problem. In the midst of all of this, uh, there were some that suggested within Corinthian society that it was best to never get married at all. To just forget the whole thing. And they began to elevate both outside the church and within the church. They began to elevate the idea of celibacy. That to be celibate, to be single and celibate was to be on the top rung, the top tier of the spiritual echelon, the spiritually elite people. If you weren't married and you were single and you were celibate, you were sort of a spiritual superstar. For you had denied the carnal flesh. You had laid aside all of those things uh, of this earth and this earthbound journey. And you had totally devoted yourself to the service of Jesus Christ. And so there was this prevailing view in Corinthian, in the Corinthian church, that celibacy was the highest form of the Christian life, that to never get married, to have no sexual relationship at all, was a sign of pure devotion on your part as a Christ follower. And the situation got so bad in the church at Corinth that people were not only not getting married, but added to that, they were condemning the people who were married. And the people who were married in the Corinthian church were leaving their partners in order to live a celibate life so that they could be more spiritual. And a believer who was married to an unbeliever, which was not all that uncommon in the first century, for there were many Christian converts who had come to faith in Christ as a result of apostolic ministry and teaching, many had chosen to follow Christ, but they were already married to unbelievers. And so it goes, they thought that there was some kind of defilement, supposed defilement in being married to an unbeliever and having a sexual relationship with an unbeliever. So there were Christians, Christ followers, in the church at Corinth that, that were leaving, were abandoning their spouses. And so there was this huge problem in the church. Huge problem. What a tiger by the tail. Christianity had come to Corinth and the Christians, newfound believers, were facing some unusual situations. And so in an effort to find answers to these perplexing problems within the church, the Corinthians had sent a letter, apparently had sent a letter to the Apostle Paul explaining their dilemmas, explaining their situations, and asking for his wisdom and guidance. And the questions that they sent to Paul can be summed up in this way. How should we, as Christ followers, treat the institution of marriage now that we are Christians? How should we treat marriage now that we are Christians? Now, their question itself uh, presupposes uh, an important principle, and that principle is simply this. It is that Christianity ought to make a difference in the way we live. I don't know if you believe that or not, but I do. That Christianity is not a system of rules and regulations. That Christianity is a living relationship with the living person of Jesus Christ. 
And if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I believe then it ought to make your life look different from the secular pagan world. Such that your values, your relationships, the way you conduct yourself in business and in the home and in society should look markedly different than the way you would have before you came to Christ. I believe that Jesus is in the job of transforming people like you and me. And if we take the claims of Christ seriously and become an authentic uh, Christ follower, that there ought to be something different about us. We've got to stand out uh, in contrast to that which we see in the world. And, and, and so it is even in marriage relationships that Paul is going to be addressing today. So that if you're claiming to be a Christian, a Christ follower, and yet your life is no different than it was before you came to faith in Christ, my dear friend, may I suggest to you that you might be fooling yourself. Perhaps, just perhaps, you should do a reality check this morning and find out uh, about the reality of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because I believe you ought to make a difference in, in what our checkbook looks like, the way our marriages are formed, the way we conduct ourselves in the marketplace, there should be something different about us. And Paul wants to make that point in this passage. Now, I had hoped to be able to treat all 40 verses of, of chapter 7. That ain't going to happen. So I'm going to break this message into two parts uh, because I, I trust that I will never... Uh, come this way again. That in my, the ministry years that I have left, that this will be the only time that I'll preach on 1 Corinthians 7. If I have anything to do about it, it will. But unabashedly, with courage and prayerful spirit, I launch into this text this morning. Let's ask for God's help, shall we? Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Melt us, mold us, fill us, and use us. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us today. May your word be our guide, your spirit our teacher, and our greatest concern be your glory. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Strap your boots on and let's jump into the text. The first thing that Paul says is this, that celibacy is a good thing. Verse 1, now for the matters you wrote about. So apparently they had written to him about some situations, this being one of them. He, he says, it is good for a man not to marry. It is good for a man not to marry. Now, I, I need to admit to you that the NIV translation of this particular verse is not uh, adequate or a particularly good one. It's not a criticism of the Bible, but rather it's a criticism of the particular translation that the NIV translators have used in taking it from the original language in the Greek to the English. 
In this particular place, they, they've not done justice to the original language. The NIV translates it and says, it is good for a man not to marry. The problem with the translation here is this. In every other place where you have these Greek words and have record of this kind of theme and thought, the Greek text is always used to talk about sexual relationships and not never about marriage. And so given how the uh, these Greek words are used in the original language, and more importantly, given the context of what Paul is saying in the larger portion of chapter 7, it seems to me to be closer to the intent of the original language and Paul's original meaning to not say it is good for a man not to marry, but it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, that's what some of the Corinthians, not Paul, that's what some of the Corinthians are saying and promoting. Not to have, that it's good not to have a sexual relationship. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's simply saying that it's good to be single. It's a good thing to be single. It's good for a man or a woman not to be married. It is good. Now you say, whoa, Rick, wait, 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 wait a minute. I'm just telling you that's what it says in the Bible. And before you all panic and hyperventilate, Paul does not say that it's the only good. In a moment, he will say that it's also good to be married. He is simply saying that it's not evil to be single. Now, this was not only a problem, I think, in Paul's day, but I think it's a problem in Christian society today. You know, uh, there are so many people that think that if you're single, if you're not married, there must be, there's got to be something wrong with you. Well, she's not married. I, I wonder what's wrong with her. She must have bad complexion or halitosis. There must be some skeletons in her closet that she's going to grow old as an old maid spinster. We have those little innuendos and Inferences. We say, poor fellow, must be a wee bit odd, can't find himself a wife, must be in really bad shape, can't find a woman to take care of him. Paul says, look, it's a good thing not to be married. He doesn't say it's bad to get married. He doesn't say it's better to be single. He just says it's good. It's beneficial, it's profitable to be unmarried. Nothing wrong with it at all. So those of you who would cast your judgment upon single people, stop it. Because Paul says, it's a good thing. It's very good. He doesn't use comparatives, he just states the fact. And the reason that this is so very urgent in Paul's addressing this issue is because in the Corinthian church, there were not only Grecian Jews, or, or Grecian uh, uh, People, but there were also Jews, converted Jews to Christianity. And oh my, oh my, you've got this mix, this blending of cultures and societies of the Grecian world and the Jewish world. Now, the Jews, you see, were strong proponents of marriage. They, the Jews used to teach that if you didn't have a wife, you were a sinner. They said this, that a man who does not have a wife and a child has slain his posterity and lessened the image of God in the world. 
According to Jewish thought of the day, there were seven kinds of people who couldn't get into heaven. They had a list of the seven kinds of people that couldn't get into heaven. And number one on the list of people who couldn't get into heaven was a Jew who had no wife. And number two on the list was a wife who had no children. Those were the two things that would keep you out of heaven. The Jew took seriously God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And according to Jewish thought, if you didn't do that, you were being disobedient to the commands of God. And no doubt there was this kind of pressure pressing in on certain members of the Corinthian church from the Jewish component. They were saying, hey, you guys, hey, you gals, you've got to be married. And at the same time, there were these Gentiles who were influenced by Greek thought and Greek Grecian culture, and they were not wanting to get into the big mash of marriage at all and saying it's better to be single because they wanted to have some kind of higher level devotion to God. And they were saying, forget it, we're going to be celibate and we're going to strictly remove ourselves from marriage and, and a life and give ourselves over to a life that's totally dedicated to God. And Paul starts out his words in dealing with this difficult issue. And he says to the Corinthians, he says, look, it's good to be single. There's nothing wrong with being single. Nothing wrong with it at all. But then he quickly goes on to to state that there's also nothing wrong with marriage. He said marriage is also good. Look at what he says in verse 2. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Paul says, as good as celibacy is, it has one major problem. The problem is it opens the door of temptation, sexual temptation. He says, as good as singlehood is, you need to understand that when you're single, you expose yourself to sexual temptation. It's tempting. And remember the sex-saturated society that these Corinthians lived in. The gross style of Corinthian life made it doubly hard for these Corinthians to live a life of purity and holiness. And in some ways, our modern-day, postmodern, 21st-century world is very, very similar and likened to first-century Corinth. I meet so many single people who are struggling today, have problems because of the constant barrage of sexual temptation that is constantly being thrown at them by the media, by the apparel industry. My wife and my daughter have made me aware recently of the supreme problem that Christian women who are giving attention to modesty these days have in finding clothes that are indeed modest and find it very frustrating to go clothes shopping, can't even find a dress that you dare wear to church. I've just gone off of my notes there for a minute. I shouldn't have done that. One of our pet peeves. The sexual images that are constantly barraging, particularly single people today, who are trying to be an authentic Christ follower and live a life of purity and holiness. And yet every time you turn on the television or every time you step into the movie theater, there's some kind of sexual innuendo. If it's not explicit, it's implicit. And it is so terribly uh, disappointing and frustrating to me. 
Paul's not saying that marriage is the absolute demand for everybody. He's just saying that it's normal to be married. And I, I even hesitate using that word normal, but he's saying it's not bad to be married because there are so many who struggle with sexual temptation, physical desire. You say, well, boy, Paul's got a very rotten view of marriage. If marriage is only about keeping you clean, if marriage is just so you don't get into trouble, and if you've got a lot of desire, you just find anybody to get married to so you don't get in trouble. Is that what Paul's saying? No. He's simply answering one problem. He's answering the argument that everybody should be single by saying everybody can't be single or you'll get into an immorality problem because the, the sexual desire that is hardwired into us as women and men, that's who we are, it is hardwired into us, this desire is too strong. And one option that is open to the single Christian is marriage. This is a way out for those who are unable to stand up to the pressures of celibacy. But as you take this option of marriage, there must be several things that you remember as you do this. And I want you to hear me. Hear me well. According to Scripture, according to Paul, marriage is intended by God to be, number one, permanent. Take note. Sunday, May 25th, 1127 in the morning. Pastor Rick said, I quote, marriage is meant by God to be permanent. Did you hear me? Marriages are not meant to be disposable. The oaths, the vows that you make to one another at the marriage altar that bind two parties and make them one are meant for a lifetime. The promise that you make to one another to love, to cherish, to honor, to serve in plenty and want, in good and bad, in sickness and in health. It's meant for death until death do you part. And I'll stand by that because that's what the Scripture says. When Kathy and I were married 28 years ago, we determined with God's help that we would remove the word divorce, that divorce would never be considered as an option for us. We made a commitment to each other, each to the other, both for the Lord, that no matter what the situation, with God's help, humbling ourselves before God, and I understand that it takes two, sometimes you have a partner that's not willing to submit to the Lordship of Christ, I understand it takes two, but that together with God's help, that we would work it out, and that we would stay true to the promises that we made to each other and to God. And I believe the most important ingredient for a successful marriage is not communication, is not your ability to handle finances, is not your conflict resolution skills, though those things are all important. I believe that the most important ingredient to a successful, healthy, God-honoring, Christ-exalting marriage is commitment. And you don't make that commitment just on the day that you get married. But listen, friends, listen. I think I know of what I speak. I've been married for 28 years. I've been around the block in marriage a little while. This commitment is not made just once, but it's made every day of your life. And sometimes, oh, many times, it is made many times every day of your life. Can I hear an amen? 
But with God's help, you can do it. Two people committed to honor Christ, loving each other, serving each other, helping each other, praying for each other, praying with each other. You can do it. And it's meant to be permanent. Secondly, according to the Bible, marriage is not polygamous. I was trying to be careful of what I said because in the first service I said marriage is not monogamous and I was totally, <laughs> totally messed it up. <laughs> marriage is not polygamous. Paul's very specific in describing Christian marriage. He says each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He does not say let each man have his own wives and let each woman have her own husbands. There's only one wife indicated and only one husband and only one husband indicated for each wife. Now, it's true that polygamy was practiced in Old Testament times, but I want to say to you that that was not God's original design. In the Garden of Eden, there's the template. In the Garden of Eden, who did God create? He created one man, one woman, Adam and Eve. He didn't create Adam, Eve, and Jane. God's design was for monogamy, not polygamy. And he brought this man and woman together into a lifelong union, one woman, one man, for a lifetime. And it's important for me to repeat that in today's society that it's one man, one woman for a lifetime. Enough said. Par marriage is permanent. It's meant to be monogamous. It is a partnership. See, most men in the ancient world had this mistaken notion that they could do whatever they want. They could marry as many women as they wanted. They could have all the concubines that they wanted. They used their, their women as things, possessions. It's not the view of the New Testament. The New Testament says that a woman is more than just a possession of her husband. Instead, there is a mutual possessionship. There is a mutual ownership. There is a mutual submission to one another. I know and we'll eventually get there into this whole thing about Christ being the head and that the husband should be the head of the wife and all of the arguments that go on. But listen, set that aside for a minute. What Christ, pardon me, what Christ has called us to in marriage and in the church is to serve one another, mutually submitting unto the Lord and submitting to one another. And that's the way it should be in marriage. There's a mutual partnership here. And, and, and if you've missed out on this team-like partnering opportunity to, to live life together with your spouse, you've really missed it. Each husband is to have his own wife, each wife to have her own husband. Two separate people become one, and this extends even to their own bodies. And Paul gets into that in these next verses. And he makes the point that celibacy is not for the married. Celibacy is wrong for married people. Well, you say, well, Rick, that's obvious. Well, I don't know how obvious it was to the Corinthians because it took Paul at least three verses to address the problem in clearing it up. Verse 3, let me give you the background. What, what is happening here is that these Corinthians, they're, 
they're getting saved, converted to Christianity, they become a Christ follower, and uh, immediately they say, well, in order for us to be totally separate from the flesh and the world and the devil, to be separated unto God, we're going we're gonna to decide that as a, even though I'm married, we're going to decide to be celibate and stop all of our physical relationship. So you have some overzealous husband who decides that he's going to give all of his devotion to God and says, I'm not going to do anything physical with my wife. I'm sorry, dear, it's just not going to happen anymore. I'm going to devote myself to being a Christ follower. Or some overzealous wife who says, well, you know what, honey, I'm now totally committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, but I can't have anything to do with you. And, and in some situations, these women were married to unbelievers and they had a, a bigger problem, again, because of the defilement issue. Uh, because you're not a Christian, I'm just not going to have anything to do with you physically anymore. Uh, and, and that's what was happening in Corinth. So how are you going to deal with it? Well, Paul says, verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, the other side of the coin, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Paul says, as husbands and wives, as Christ followers, you have an obligation in your marriage to give one another what you owe one another. You've given yourself fully to this person, body, soul, and spirit. When you commit yourself to this lovely woman that you've fallen in love with, or this handsome young man. You're committing your future, you're committing yourself, you're committing your body, your whole self, everything that you have. I pledge you my troth, the old Anglican service says. I give it all to you. Even if he's a non-Christian, you owe him her a debt. Paul's saying, if you're a Christian, it doesn't change that. You continue to, in marriage, to fulfill the sexual desires of each other. I believe that's what he's talking about here. You might disagree with that. You might think, oh my goodness, Crocker's gone off his rocker today. What in the world is he talking about? Uh, And you're rather prudish and can't even understand why I'm addressing such an issue. I'm just telling you that's what the Word of God says. God made the physical part of marriage a great part. Is it all right to say that? That the physical part of marriage is a great part of marriage. I know that some of you feel shocked that I would admit that. It's great. And it's holy. In fact, the scripture says, That the union between a husband and a wife in physical intimacy is a reflection of the union, listen, the union that Christ has with his bride, the church. It's a reflection of that, that something that is holy and sacred and special, all part of God's design. And I, I think we're uncomfortable with that in the church, frankly. We don't like to admit that. It's part of the Bible. When's the last time you read the Song of Songs? 
My goodness, I've, I've lived to be 50. I think I'll be 53 this year. I have to figure that out. Am I going to be 53 this year? In my life, I've been in church every week of my life almost. I've only heard one sermon out of the Song of Songs. Someday I'm going to take up the challenge and before I die, if God helps and is willing, I'm going to preach that. I may rue the day that I decided to do that. A song of Songs. Have you, have you read it lately? It gives us this marvelous lyric of praise for the physical relationship between a man and a woman. Listen to what the man says in the Song of Songs. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. You are all fair, my love, and there is no flaw in you. How many of you woman, women would die to hear your husband say, Oh, there is no flaw in you. And then he says, you've ravished my heart. This guy's sick with love and passion. You've ravished my heart. The wonderful thing about growing old together in marriage is that even though the wrinkles begin to appear and the gray begins to streak in the hair and the chest falls down into the drawers, the wonderful thing about a godly marriage is you just keep getting more in love with each other. I love Kathy more today than on the day I first married her. It keeps getting better and better. It's like the wine at the Feast of Cana. The best wine is saved for last. I think. I think the best wine is saved for last. But the woman in Song of Songs is equally thrilled. My beloved is radiant and ruddy. He is fairer than 10,000. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. His desire is toward me. And then the coupe de gras, Jim McDonald says, this woman in Song of Songs says, I am sick with love. Men, wouldn't you love to have your wife say to you after church today, I'm sick. Instead of saying, I'm sick of you. <laughs> That's more often the case, isn't it? What are they talking about in the Song of Songs? They're talking about the physical. She's really excited about this guy and he about her. And that's how it ought to be. God designed marriage to be the physical expression of love, of the blending of two separate lives into one. And God honors and has made special the sexual desire that is contained within marriage, not outside of marriage, but is contained within the sacred institution of marriage. And Paul, addressing some of these issues, people who were still married to unbelieving wives thought that it was wrong to continue to engage in marital relations with an unbelieving spouse. He clears up this misunderstanding, and he does not say that it is okay to marry an unbeliever, but he says, if a marriage already exists, then the marital relationship between the partners should continue. Now, there, there are several provisos he gives here, and I don't have time this morning to go into them, but he talks about a temporary deprivation where he says there, you can abstain from this. It's permissible between married couples when there's mutual consent. That is, you both agree to it. It must be temporary. Paul says that this abstinence is only for a time, and when that time is 
fulfilled, uh, then the couple is to come back together and resume their marital relationship, and that it has a special purpose. It is for the purpose of prayer, that the pressing needs of life sometimes come in upon you. As a married couple, they may be so demanding that they interfere with you as a couple giving sufficient time to prayer and intercession. So Paul says, I'll make a concession on this point. There might be a time when you need to step back and you need to really devote yourself all of your time, all of your energies to prayer. But he says, no matter what the reason, at the end of this period, the couple, the married couple, is, is instructed to come back together. Now, you say, why are you dealing with this? Well, let me tell you with pastorally for just a moment. I'm going to go from preaching to meddling for a moment. I have, I can't tell you the numbers of people that I've sat with in my study, both male and female, husbands and wives, I have people who come and talk to me about the anguish and the anxiety in their relationship because they don't feel connected physically with their spouse. The bitter tears that have been wept as they've poured out their hearts. Listen, when you withhold your, from your partner you are putting your partner in a very tempting situation. In a place where Satan will tempt her or him toward their lack of self-control. And it's not just men, it's men and women. I have wives and husbands who say, we haven't slept together in the same bed for years. She sleeps in the guest room, I sleep in the master bedroom. Anytime you withhold from your partner that which is rightfully theirs, you become an agent of Satan. Don't ever put your husband or wife in a situation where they are open to temptation simply because you're selfish. It isn't right. If I say I love my wife, and if you say you love your husband, if that's really true, then you will never willfully, open, openly put that person in a place where the fiery darts of the enemy will be able to get at them. I dare say that if you were to search among the smoldering ruins of many wrecked marriages, that you would find in the ashes somewhere, among other things, you would find somewhere in the ashes the signature of this very issue. It's an important matter. And I'm going to read what I've written here because I don't want to be misquoted. There is no such thing as an adultery-proof marriage or an adultery-proof church. And giving oneself sexually to your partner and serving your partner in this way is not a guarantee that sexual immorality will not become a problem in your marriage. But friends, if we were to take Paul's teaching to heart and husbands and wives were to model Christ's self-giving love, and begin to really serve one another in this way, and in this particular area, while we will never have an adultery-proof marriage or church, we will at least have an adultery-resistant one. And what a blessing it would be to the work of the gospel and the witness of the gospel in this city if we would take Paul's exhortations seriously. The final thing that Paul says is celibacy is not for everyone. Verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am. You're thinking, I don't want to be like Paul. 
I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. Paul will go on later and talk about the practical advantages of being single. He'll say, he'll say that a single person has an easier time of it when persecution and hardship comes. That the single person does not have to deal with the stress of marital problems. Let's acknowledge it. Being married it can at times, not always, not much of the times, but being married can create some additional stress. Amen? Poke your husband. Say, I told you so. Paul says you don't have to deal with that when you're single. He also says that the single believer does not have the distractions of married life. Therefore, she or he can devote themselves more to the Lord's work. And so he sees these practical advantages to being single. But he also realizes that being single is not for everyone, as I've already stated. That each man has his own gift from God, one this way, one that way. And later on in chapters 12, 13, and 14, Paul's going to deal with spiritual gifts, and we'll get into all of that. But... Right here, he says, for some, they have the gift of celibacy. This is a gift from God. Others have a capacity and even a need to be married, to merge their lives with another person so that two become one. This is also a gift from God. Now, you're going to ask me, well, which gift has God given to me? And I would ask you back, well, are you happy being single? If you're happy being single, then I dare say that that might be a spiritual gift. Not sure fired, but it might be a spiritual gift. And you don't have to deal with the distractions of marriage, and you can give yourself more fully to the work of the Lord. That's a good thing. Singlehood is a good thing. Don't you go out and get desperate and think that you've got to get married. There's a lot worse things than being married or being single. (laughs) which tape are you going to put out today service one or service two (laughs) I'm tired of this text there's a lot let me say what I intended to say there's a lot of (laughs) there are many things that are worse than being single got that part right One of the things that's worse than being single is being married to the wrong person. I knew I'd hear a chorus of amens on that. But celibacy is not for everyone. Some of you can be celibate and you can live a life that's honoring to God, a fulfilling life, and you don't need to be worried about the fact that you're single. You're not an also-ran or a second-rate person in the community of God's people. But some of you are meant to merge your life with another person for a lifetime. Which is your gift? Are you married? Is there someone in your life with whom you've become one in mind and spirit and body who is your partner in life and your counterpart? Then probably marriage is your gift. Don't back away from your marriage. Invest your whole self into it every day. Commit yourself to make your marriage the very best that it can be. And you might say, well, Rick, I don't fit into either category. I'm not, I'm single, but I'm not happy being single. And there's no one in my life who is my counterpart yet. If that's where you are, my message to you this morning is wait. 
Wait, wait, wait. Don't rush ahead of God. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't go out to the single bar to find a good man. Wait, wait, wait. And you might think, well, I've been waiting for so long now. Let me tell you in closing about my friend Pearl. She's a dear saint who is now in glory. For a time, she attended here at First Alliance. She was a missionary with the Christian Missionary Alliance, and then she became an executive secretary at the headquarters of the Christian Missionary Alliance, first in Nyack and then in Colorado Springs. She was single for most of her life. She wanted to be married. She devoted herself to the work of God. But an unexpected and special blessing came into her life when she was in her late 60s. And God brought a wonderful man by the name of John into her life. He was a widower. He had loved his wife and had a wonderful marriage with her. But the two of them met and they fell in love and they committed themselves together in holy matrimony. And just for a short season, not long, just a few years, because the Lord took her home. And then after her death, took John home to be with him. But for a few short years, she enjoyed wonderful married life together with John. And one day in a private moment, she said to me, and I counted myself one of her friends. She said, Pastor Rick. I'm so glad I waited. God gave me the very best. I'm so glad I waited. Wait. Next week we'll plow into other controversial matters. I look forward to that. (laughs) And I've struggled a bit to know how to end a message like this. I thought to myself, you can't really have people stand and sing six verses of Just As I Am. (laughs) But maybe you can. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and thou hast bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Here I am, Lord, I'm single, and I'm trying to stay pure, and I want to live my life for your glory. Here I am, Lord, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Here I am, Lord, I'm I'm married, and my wife and I were having troubles in our marriage, and we don't see many things eye to eye, and Love is growing dim and romance is long past. There's not much left, Lord, just shreds. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. I come. Here I am, Lord, married, happy, 
having celebrated a, a silver anniversary, falling in love with my wife every day, life couldn't be better. Here I am, Lord. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Single, married. Here I am, Lord. Divorced. I, I never planned on it. I didn't think it would happen to me. I'm lonely. Sometimes I'm afraid. So disappointed. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Here I am, Lord. Widowed. The person that I've loved the most is now taken from me. Their gentle touch I no longer know. I miss them so much and just pray that the Lord would take me home. Here I am, Lord. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Lord, we come to Thee humble in spirit, seeking Your face, thanking You for this particular and practical portion of Your Word. So glad, Lord, that I didn't give in to the flesh to try to avoid it. Pray that your spirit will preach and re-preach this message over and again to our hearts. And that no matter what our lot in life, that we shall not question or chafe against your sovereign purpose or plan, but instead, Lord, we present ourselves to you just as we are without one plea. O Lamb of God, we come. We come. Now, Lord, dismiss us with your blessing. Cause your grace and your peace to rest upon us. And may the favor of God be evident in our lives, in all of our relationships, and the way we live our lives and what we value. And may we seek to live an authentic life. May we really be real, Lord, as a Christ follower this week.